My name is Nico Fund. I'm the president and academic publisher of Oxford University Press in the United States. Our offices are in uh, New York City in the heart of Midtown, and uh, we have a distribution facility in uh, North Carolina as well. I want to thank you very much. I'm deeply flattered that you would uh, opt on a day such as this of your own volition to come uh, spend part of your morning listening to me talking about what I do and what's happening in the, uh, in the world of books and of, uh, of publishing. Uh, I've been doing this now for about a quarter of a century. I started publishing right out of college uh, as an editorial assistant at Oxford, was there for three years, then moved to a smaller university press and came back in uh, 2000. So I've been uh, back at OUP for about a dozen years now. And uh, I recently went to my own 25-year college reunion and uh, was struck by the fact that the ways in which people respond to you uh, when you tell them that you are in publishing have uh, changed markedly over the last uh, 10 years. So uh, it used to be that when you led on to somebody in a cocktail, con uh, cocktail party conversation or just a, a casual acquaintance that you were in publishing, uh, they had one of, of two reactions. Um, first of all, they asked you if you read all the books that you published, uh, which, as you can imagine, and as I'll show you with some of the statistics about OUP, uh, I resoundingly do not. Um, and then they would inevitably tell you about their book proposal. And, uh, and, and, and that's, of course, to be perfectly clear, that is exactly as it should be. That's why we exist. So that is always actually quite affirming. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm always reminded of, there's a, an article, in, uh, there was an article in Harper's Magazine several years ago uh, in which the, uh, there, the, there was a, it was based on a poll that was taken. It was a fairly large poll. I forget the exact numbers, but it was several uh, hundred, maybe a few thousand people. And they asked them uh, a series of questions about books, their relationships to books. And one of the questions was, uh, what percentage of the population do you think should write books? And I think the answer was somewhere in the uh, low to middle di digits. You know, it's four to five percent. Uh, and then they asked the exact same group of people, and you know where this is going, uh, well, but how about you? Do you have a book in you? And the response invariably, I think it was like 80% of people said, hell yes, I have a book in me. Uh, so that, that's, that's essentially, that, that in a nutshell is the business model of publishers, right? That's the, what we do is to try to, uh, to decide, to help you uh, decide which is, is good, what is worth your time, uh, you know, the proverbial uh, wheat from the chaff. And, and what is perhaps uh, best left uh, unread. Um, more recently, what has happened is that people tend to respond in, uh, they still respond in those two ways, but there are two other responses that I've been particularly conscious of. Uh, the first is uh, that people will tell you uh, about their undying devotion either to print, on the one hand, or to their new e-reader. Uh, and that is, uh, and it's rarely both. It's almost always one or the other. Uh, and then uh, the other is that uh, people will look at you in this somewhat commiserating way, as if, yeah, it must really be difficult right now. Because there's this general sense, uh, and you would certainly get that from reading uh, my hometown paper, The New York Times, that the publishing industry is in a shambles, that the entire, you know, the entire thing is just crumbling on its edifice. Uh, there, there's a guy in the, uh, who writes a, a media column for the Times named David Carr, 
And the phrase, the crumbling publishing industry, has featured at least two or three times just in the last year in his, um, in his columns. So uh, I, I'm here to tell you, one of the, my hope is today that over the course of the next hour or so, uh, you'll come out of this with uh, uh, the way in which you think about th th these massive, radical, you know, tectonic changes that we're experiencing in how people read and how information gets communicated, and that you have some context for what's actually happening uh, on the ground uh, in pub uh, publishing houses and uh, in the lives of readers. And I say that because publishing is my job. I spend the majority of my waking hours thinking about these things. And I will tell you, especially in the last two or three years, uh, it, it, to a greater extent than ever before, I have struggled to keep up. Uh, I, I, I find it absolutely overwhelming how quickly these changes are coming at us. This is an industry that's been around for 500 years, and for most of that half century, uh, we've done more or less the same thing. It's the, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of industries or a lot of enterprises in any sense where for half a millennium, it's basically been unchanged. And in the last 10 years, we've just seen so many changes, it's, it's just astonishing. So uh, I'm going to uh, rattle through a, a number of uh, general observations about what's happening. I'm going to show you a few uh, case studies, because uh, one of the things, of course, that people uh, do always want to know about publishing is, uh, is sales figures and how these things work. And so I'm going to be uh, slightly indiscreet in that sense, because I think w uh, what we've learned with regard to how people read e-books and what makes them want to read books on their e-readers has been, to me, one of the most fascinating things in my whole career. And we've learned more there in the last 12 months than, than we did uh, in the previous quarter century. So just very quickly, I'm gonna, and I, I realize that the uh, screen's a little light, um, so I'm going to uh, talk you quickly through some of the slides. Most of you, I think, know the basics about OUP. Uh, we're almost as old as the industry itself. Uh, this is a statistic I'm always struck by. We are uh, larger than all the other uh, US and UK university presses combined. And people, uh, and I myself, despite having worked at Oxford for three years, uh, until I came back, I didn't quite appreciate the degree to which the press is not just uh, composed of uh, works of academic research, but is actually also one of the largest English language training and English as a second language publishers in the world. So we're about a billion dollar company globally, and, uh, and more than half of that is about literacy, is about schools and textbooks publishing. Um, we are pretty much, you know, the, the saying about how the sun never set on the British Empire, which I probably in, in this setting should not uh, invoke, but the, the, uh, the same, of course, uh, that actually still holds true uh, with OUP because there are really outposts of OUP almost all over the world. We employ about 6,000 people uh, and we publish about 300 journals and uh, 7,000 books a year. Uh, I, when I came to Oxford, I was struck uh, in the first, during the interviews in the first couple of uh, months with how earnestly the mission of the press was bandied about in many meetings. Uh, and I at first thought that this was, uh, you know, maybe somewhat for show. And uh, in, the, in the intervening decade, I have been struck continually how much our mission informs what we do. Uh, while we are obviously a commercially successful enterprise, we don't really do things for the purpose of, of uh, of uh, commerce. We do things that will advance our mission, and, uh, and uh, we like to say that in order to, uh, to advance our mission, we have to make money, but we don't do things to make money. Uh, and that may sound like a semantic distinction, but it is actually a crucial operating principle for, for how the press works. So just a very quick uh, run through. Uh, we publish a great deal uh, across all the entire spectrum of uh, academic works, from journals to books to general interest books to reference works. 
uh, we have become in the last uh, uh, few years, we have become a, a very, very active publisher in, in terms of uh, online works in the academic sphere. And I'll tell you about some of those uh, over the course of the next few minutes. Uh, we are a publisher in uh, what's called STM, Science, Technical, and Medical, uh, across a, a wide range of medicine and the sciences. Uh, our scholarly reference publishing, probably no area of the press has been uh, traditionally more high profile, uh, but also has transitioned more quickly in the last decade than reference. You know, I, I came to think a few years ago of the distinction between how people look for information in an extractive way, the way in which people go to Wikipedia, say, or Google, uh, and then the more long-form, immersive reading. Uh, and, and, and that distinction, I think, is a crucial one. Uh, and reference publishing uh, and uh, the, the, the search for the best content in an extractive way has moved online more quickly than practically any other kind of our publishing. And that has been uh, both a challenge and actually a, a quite a formidable success story for the press in the last decade. Oops. Um, see here. Uh, obviously, we are a reference publisher uh, of dictionaries. Dictionaries are really what, in many uh, parts of the world, we're best known for. The OED was the first work of the presses to move online. Uh, that was, I think, uh, almost 15 years ago now. So uh, that was, uh, in, in a sense, the, the, the flagship or the wedge for all of our, all of our online experience. Uh, we're also a publisher of textbooks. The, the, the textbook publishing space has become an extremely contentious one in recent years because there's a sense, uh, not entirely unfounded, that uh, textbook prices have become exorbitant and just unsustainable. And what the press has been trying to do in certain uh, markets, particularly in the US, is to try to actually provide very high quality textbooks, but to do so at a, at a somewhat more affordable price for, uh, for students. So I realize that uh, most of you won't be able to read this, but I thought I would uh, try to give you a sense of uh, the work that we do on the academic research side in the form of a, a cartoon. This is uh, three people sitting in an office and one is saying, Mr. Kelwood is looking for someone to assist him in recasting his journals into a form suitable for a wider audience. The tone should be urbane, warm, and scholarly, somewhat in the manner of Lewis Thomas, but of course about plywood. Uh, now, that's of course a little excessively self-effacing because uh, we publish a lot more than uh, uh, works about plywood, obviously, but metaphorically there is some truth to it. Uh, we are a publisher to the Academy. Uh, the Academy is a, a world unto itself that is composed uh, of uh, essentially these tribal disciplines where people organize themselves into groups that see the world through a particular methodology. Uh, and our job oftentimes, well, our job is twofold, really, in, in this regard. It's to uh, be publishing to that community and then, on occasion, to actually assist members of that community in trying to translate their message to people outside of that, that world. And that is actually one of the biggest challenges because uh, academics oftentimes do lead somewhat uh, insular or, or hermetic existences and they tend to gravitate in circles of people who are similarly trained, uh, people who have the same knowledge base, people who speak uh, the same language and uh, that sometimes is, is quite a challenge to translate to people outside of, uh, of that world. And Oxford has actually, I think over the years, done a pretty good job uh, of doing that in a, in a discriminating way. Um, this is also, and this is completely illegible, I think, to everybody in the room, but this is a, a cartoon that appeared in the New, York, uh, New Yorker a few years ago, and I have to say it, it took me aback because I realized that a crucial part of my working life had actually become uh, a cliché to such a point that it, it was featured in the, uh, the pages of the New Yorker. It's a gentleman uh, uh, with a uh, 
a beard and glasses who looks astonishingly like the uh, politics professor Bertel Ullman at, at NYU. Uh, and um, the, uh, there's a very earnest looking person looking at him uh, open-facedly and he's saying, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> I confess to modest hopes, <clears throat> not wildly unfounded I trust, that my book may resonate beyond the reaches of academe. <laughs> and uh, so that, that, is, uh, that, that nicely encapsulates uh, um, that aspect of our work. So this is a sign that you used to see in libraries a lot. Uh, and does anybody want to venture a guess why uh, that sign was put up? It says, please do not replace journals after use. They go in the wrong place. They go in the wrong place. That was, that was uh, my thought as well. There's one other reason. Are they wanting to know who's looking at what? Precisely. They want to know who's looking at what. So that was, when I was in college, that was the, uh, the scientific methodology via which librarians gauged usage. Okay? And, uh, and that today has turned into this. Uh, and I think that all of us are, are struggling in the publishing world, certainly in the library world, with this uh, explosion of data and with the, just the sheer number of options that we have at our disposal to, to gauge how we work. It used to be that, that uh, research librarians prided themselves on the fact that uh, in the first 10 years of a life's work, um, uh, Fit, or, or their acquisitions, 50% of what they acquired oftentimes hadn't circulated once. And the idea was that, you, that you're essentially curating this collection, you want it to be comprehensive, publishers are terrible about keeping works in print, you want to make sure you get those books early, uh, uh, and that, was, that, that made sense then. Uh, it makes much less sense now in, a, in an era of, uh, of constricting budgets and of uh, provosts who, especially in the US, especially in states like California, <clears throat> are cutting entire programs, are you know, just, just laying waste to the educational system. And the idea that uh, as somebody is uh, furloughing staff and, and, uh, and chopping away at departments, that you could have a part of the university that is spending millions of dollars uh, buying things that no one is looking at, is, is, uh, you can understand why, why people uh, find that problematic. So, um, the, uh, I thought I would give you a quick sense here of, uh, we did this internally the other day and I thought it was actually fascinating, uh, the things that um, used to drive the success of a book uh, and the things that drive the su success now. So uh, in the, in the pre-digital age it was things like brand, uh, so the, uh, the reputation of the publisher, the author, the journal, people, uh, uh, librarians, content, and then in red we, we highlighted the things that we thought really did not make a difference in the way they used to. So bookshops came first, uh, learned societies, uh, the, the, uh, the re reviewers, uh, university teachers, uh, library suppliers, these intermediaries between the publishers and uh, the librarians and the scholars, and then uh, a, a regional or local focus. And, uh, and now I'm going to just highlight the ones that have, have entered into our world. Discoverability is probably the single most important thing. We spend a disproportionate part of our lives focusing on discoverability. How can you ensure that uh, our works in whatever form are visible to people who want to find them? And that may sound, again, like a, uh, a, a something that's motivated by a business concern, but it's actually motivated by, squarely motivated by mission, because one of the things that we do know, given our internal processes for ensuring that our works are high quality, is that our, 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 the, the material that goes out into the world with an Oxford imprint is good. And uh, so as part of our mission, if, you know, we would much rather have content 
uh, appearing on the first page of a Google search uh, on a given topic, let's say the John F. Kennedy assassination or what have you, that is ours than something that is, uh, is not vetted. So, and that, that is an unbelievably complicated universe. It gets you into questions of you know, search engine optimization and, and so forth. And I, and I don't want to uh, make it sound like I'm being uh, precious about that. I think that um, I, I actually, uh, in the early days of Wikipedia, I was, I was really struck by the way in which a lot of reference publishers uh, took it upon themselves to, at every possible moment, trash Wikipedia because they, you know, they felt like, oh, the quality was bad, and, uh, and it was done entirely out of professional self-interest, right? They saw their livelihood endangered, and so they wanted to take out that which was endangering it. Um, I think that given that most people in publishing tend to be uh, politically left of center, tend to be suspicious of... Uh, Power structures uh, tend to be uh, sympathetic to social justice campaigns. Uh, the idea that Wikipedia is not one of the most remarkable things that's happened in our lifetimes, uh, the fact that, that people chose not to see that, uh, I think resulted in them throwing up blinkers that not only uh, made them project themselves in their position in a disingenuous way, but actually uh, worked actively against their understanding what was actually happening in the world of information and business. So uh, it, it, it was a real lesson to me that we, we really need, uh, it's, it's incumbent upon us not to simply think of what does that mean for me in terms of changes, especially uh, working at a mission-based publishing house like OUP. So uh, some of the other things, global focus, uh, uh, Amazon licensing partners, uh, technology, which is a key part of discoverability. I say global focus, and I thought uh, it would be interesting to, to uh, highlight this fact, this slide, and again, I'm going to use my little laser pointer here. Uh, this slide shows uh, the research output in Asia Pacific, in the USA, and in the EU27. And, uh, We've spent a lot of time in the last uh, few years putting sales teams in the ground all over the world and trying to make sure that our content is actually reaching uh, developing countries, reaching scholars in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, and, and not just focusing on our, uh, what you might think of as our home markets. But one of the dangers of that is that we uh, overlook the fact that, that the output of research is exploding. Uh, in, in places, parts of the world that we had not traditionally thought of as sources of, of high quality content. So you can see that, that Asia Pacific has just in the last couple of years uh, has essentially exceeded the US in terms of research output uh, and is uh, likely to catch up very soon with, uh, with the, um, uh, the EU27. So uh, I also thought it would be useful to contrast uh, that observation is this graphic, which in, in the, is a classic example, I think, of a picture telling a thousand words. This is a, an image of the world uh, uh, that, that shows you economic growth uh, by region, by country, since 1970. So it's, I, what I, I thought it was just such a stark uh, a depiction because obviously uh, here you can see, you know, the, obviously the point about Asia Pacific exploding. Uh, and then you have, you know, the U.S. is looking a little inflated, parts of Europe are growing, although this, this is a little bit old, so who knows what this would look like now. Uh, uh, Greece would, would vanish from existence. But uh, uh, you can see that uh, Latin America looks like a seahorse, and uh, Africa has essentially been converted into a dotted line. So 
uh, for us, uh, as, as a mission-oriented organization, we have to constantly be moving back and forth between this consideration about what's a market and what, what is our mission. So we, we give away uh, an enormous amount of our content uh, in Africa. So we, uh, to, to many regions of the world, we will uh, uh, offer our books at a, at a heavily, heavily discounted rate. Um, but with, uh, with the Africa, uh, the way Africa is, and given our ability to reach uh, new markets with online services, uh, we find ourselves increasingly uh, just making a lot of work available for free. Okay, so uh, since one of the focuses here is uh, today is ebooks, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, what's happened there in the last few years. This is a fairly straightforward uh, uh, image. So, you used to have authors who gave things to publishers, and that does actually look remarkably like our building in New York. Uh, and then uh, you had readers at the other end. Uh, that has now turned into this. Uh, whereby you have at the center of uh, what is essentially a wheel of, of dissemination. You have the publisher, but you also have the author. Uh, there's been uh, tremendous growth in uh, what are called author services houses, used to be called vanity presses. Um, in the U.S., I, uh, I want to get this right. I'm not going to get it quite right, but just as a matter of scale, I think it used to be that we published in the U.S. about in the neighborhood of 120,000 to 150,000, I want to say, ISBNs, so single new books a year. Uh, last year, that number was over 3 million. And that is all due to the growth of, of author service houses. So, uh, and again, it's, it's, a number, uh, it, it's one of these developments that I think some publishers uh, look down their noses at and, and think, you know, ugh, that's all, the, the sort of the great unwashed. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, from my standpoint, I actually think you, know, you can make arguments that from an environmental uh, standpoint, it may not be the best thing in the world, given all these books that are being uh, produced that, in some cases, uh, aren't, getting, uh, get, aren't getting read. But, uh, I actually think it's uh, an example of the way in which publishing technology has been democratized. You know, it used to be that publishers were this guild. Uh, people wondered how we made decisions. We controlled the means of uh, production. And now, for $300, anyone can uh, get their uh, collection of short stories, their family history, their musings of any kind, their solution, uh, their, their formula for world peace, and there are a lot of those, um, uh, published. And that's not, uh, from my standpoint, I think that's actually perfectly fine. There, there are you know, these little micro markets all over, and if you write uh, uh, a portrait of your Uncle Jerry and all the members of your extended family want a copy, and that can be done for a few hundred dollars, uh, where, where's the harm? So uh, hence the, the author in the middle of the, of the wheel there. But uh, so we used to have the printed book. Uh, now we have the ebook. We have uh, a great many uh, businesses, uh, startup companies who are trying to insinuate themselves into uh, the, the author book relationship. Uh, obviously, um, uh, many of these are, are uh, companies that identify a certain uh, audience and then just essentially try to aggregate content for that audience. You have the traditional wholesalers. You have all sorts of different databases. Oxford right now has about 50 different online products. We're constantly updating, and, uh, and the act of publishing is simply releasing something into a database and, uh, and making that available. Uh, and then there are obviously a great many ways in which uh, people are uh, distributing materials on the web that I can't even cover here. So uh, in terms of the paths, just taking that one channel of the ebook, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the ways in which that universe has, has grown. So in the US, the Kindle is probably the, uh, is the, the predominant uh, e-reader. Uh, the Nook and the iPad have made significant inroads recently. 
Um, Oxford Scholarship Online is, a, is an Oxford-specific uh, archive. It's essentially every specialist research monograph that we publish gets distributed at the same time that we publish it in print onto Oxford Scholarship Online. That's been the case since about 2003. So we were the first publisher to uh, come out with a uh, single publisher platform. And because Oxford is so large, uh, I think that's primarily why it worked. It would be much more difficult for smaller presses. Uh, there is, there is a, a great deal of, um, uh, well, Google, I mean, I, I, Google is Google. We all know about Google. Overdrive is a, a company that caters to public libraries. Then there are a whole host of smaller companies. When I mentioned third-party aggregators, uh, NetLibrary, MyILibrary, eBrary, EBL. And then under et cetera, I've listed companies like Chegg, Kobo, No, Sony, uh, who have, in, in the case of Sony, they got an early start uh, in the ebook space, but actually have, have done relatively little uh, with it. So uh, one of the themes, uh, when I was saying earlier that, we, that, that I struggle with all the, the changes, uh, E.O. Wilson, who is a, a, a life scientist, a biologist at Harvard, uh, said this a few years ago and made the distinction between the fact that we're drowning in, drowning in information while being starved for wisdom. And that really does uh, inform how we are doing everything at Oxford these days. You know, we've moved from a world where you had essentially one or two different uh, uh, platforms or layers of authority to a world now where there are hundreds, dozens of different kinds of, of, uh, of authority. And, uh, and uh, the question of, as to whether or not readers are able to themselves make the distinction between something that is uh, right and, and valid, uh, or whether that distinction is something that uh, an organization like OUP, you know, publishers uh, used to be called, less so now, but the term gatekeeper was oftentimes uh, invoked. Uh, and I think that the, the need, uh, depending on whom you talk to, uh, People can make a very persuasive argument in both directions about this, right? Uh, people can say, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a guy who founded the Daily Coast, uh, um, Marcus Zuninga, and he said, uh, I don't want people thinking for me. Well, you know, that's, that's a pretty good line. Who wants people thinking for them? Uh, I, uh, in terms of where I stand, I, I don't want people thinking for me, but I absolutely look at signifiers to tell me what I should be reading and viewing. So if uh, Michiku Kakutani reviews a book, like she just reviewed Michael Shaban's new book in the Times last week, if she raves about a book, in my experience, chances are I'm going to like that book. There are books that she is, you know, tepid on that I actually I quite like. But when she likes a book, uh, I almost always like it. And I think all of us develop those different kinds of, uh, of uh, shortcuts. And I think what Oxford is trying to do in a much more wholesale way, again, uh, oftentimes in these discipline, uh, in this dis discipline-based way, is trying to help uh, academics uh, deal with all this information, which really has become, uh, at times, uh, overwhelming. I also think that as a result of all this data and all this information, uh, all of us succumb to uh, a, a way of thinking that is uh, artificially dichotomous, right? And I thought this cartoon nicely highlights it. So uh, two people standing in front of the, sitting in front of this enormous television set, and he's saying, we could rent a 99-cent content for the new Apple TV or plug-in, the uh, Roco XR box, or stream Netflix video, or browse to or download an AVI file from the hard drive, or insert a DVD into the Blu-ray. What sounds good? And then he's reading the newspaper, and she's reading a book. Uh, and you know, we, we've all certainly been there. Uh, uh, but I think that what, what, uh, 
what, what that unfortunately overlooks, despite the fact that it does identify a, a symptom that we've all uh, succumbed to, is that uh, we're just in this very messy period right now where it, it is just not an either-or environment. You know, we're experimenting with uh, selling print books and then giving people for another 10 or 15% access to the online version. We are experimenting with selling a database to a library and then saying, for, you know, uh, 80% off the price of the printed book, you can also get a price, get a copy of the printed book. Uh, these things are all working in conjunction with each other. And, uh, and none of us can figure out yet what this is all, where it's all going, what it's, what it's going to mean, beyond knowing that there is a general transition taking place whereby print is declining at different speeds. In, in the world of fiction last year, the decline was explosive. You had certain kinds of genre uh, publishers like Harlequin, the romance publisher, true crime, uh, not true crime, sorry, uh, crime, uh, mysteries, where the move to online happened like that last year. So suddenly 30% of sales moved from print to online. Um, but that still means that 70% of uh, the books that are being sold are being sold in print. So I think that uh, uh, none of us really knows, but what, what I'm always struck by, going back to my, my opening comments about uh, people's fealty for the, uh, to, to print or, or, or newfound love of their e-reader, is uh, it's almost like parenting, right? In my experience, when you talk to people, especially young parents of young children, and I have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old, uh, when you start having conversations about working parents and uh, uh, life balance and so forth, people are, are just incapable of removing themselves from their you know, n equals 1 or n equals 2 sample, uh, which is their own experience, and generalizing more broadly. They tend to just, and they think they're being objective when they're absolutely not being objective. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the t number of times where uh, I'll be in a conversation, a, a business conversation about some Oxford initiative, and someone will say, well, you know, when I turn, turn off my e-reader at night, uh, and I just say, listen, that's irrelevant. It's just not relevant. You're one person. You know, this is not... Uh, so um, the, the, the tyranny of the anecdote and personal experience, I think, uh, is, is particularly uh, uh, profound in, in the, the current environment. So. Uh, with regard to these different layers of authority, I thought this was a nice juxtaposition. Yeah, I know. I think I, I think one of my absolute favorite cartoons. For those of you in the back who can't see it, it's uh, uh, two dogs, one saying, uh, I had my own blog for a while, but I decided to go back to just pointless, incessant barking. Um, and then nicely juxtaposed this quote from uh, David Runciman in the L uh, LRB of a few years ago, um, which uh, tr essentially tracks how uh, blogs have evolved, right? There are terrific blogs out there. Uh, there's, to my way of thinking, no more interesting, dynamic, authoritative uh, site to go to track uh, developments in the presidential election in the U.S. than um, Real Clear Politics, which is a, a site that Nate Silver, who's a statistician, created and now uh, is, uh, you know, I, I, I look at it every day a couple of times. And uh, so, you know, th these things are both true. And it's another example of how uh, um, there's just no clear-cut uh, answer. So when I, uh, I glossed over when we were looking at the one, uh, at the one spoke uh, and there was a, a, a little blue bubble that said print and then the parentheses POD. And POD stands for print on demand. Uh, during the time where everybody is speculating about ebooks and, and going on endlessly about the future of publishing and the demise of publishing and the, how ebooks are going to take over the world, what was quietly happening was a revolution in digital printing that actually facilitated the explosion of uh, author service houses and those three and a half million new books every year. 
So uh, for those of you who may not know uh, about it, the long tail's become a fairly uh, um, ex uh, widely known business concept for, for uh, content producers. But just very quickly, uh, Chris Anderson is the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine. And he, um, uh, several years ago, began uh, looking at uh, producer, at media companies, and any company that, that makes stuff. And concluded that, and, and basically made the distinction between what he called the big head, which is this uh, uh, red area, and then the long tail. Now, what, what this uh, chart shows is essentially this is a, a time uh, continuum right here, and this is volume of sales. Okay, so if you look at this through the prism of, let's say, a Hollywood uh, uh, film, this has become especially exaggerated because what happens is, you know, you have to open big. You spend $300 million on some blockbuster CGI movie, and if you don't make, you know, $200 million in the first three days, all is lost. Uh, so that's right here. And, uh, and then, you know, it drops off sharply and then continues to drop off. But what was happening in the publishing industry, especially uh, at presses like Oxford, and Oxford is the definition of a long-tail publisher. We have 21,000 books in stock, uh, in, in print. Um, is that right around, say, here, we just stopped selling the book. And the reason we stopped selling the book is because the economies of scale of printing were such that we couldn't afford to keep the book in print. So imagine you're an author, and some of you may have had this unhappy experience, that you spend eight years working on a book, you spend a year getting it into print, the publisher publishes it, and three and a half years after they publish it, they say, yeah, sorry, it's, uh, the rate of sales isn't such that we can keep it available, so it's, it's out of stock indefinitely. And then it's essentially resigned to this purgatory where it's not, I mean, it's, it's in print, technically, because it's not out of copyright, but nobody can get it. So when I got to Oxford in 2000, uh, there were, Think about 6,000 books, <laughs> 6,000 books that were in that, in that state. And, the, and those were books that would, would be selling anywhere from one to 125 copies a year. And at the time, in order for us to actually keep books in print, according to our formula, we needed to be able to sell about five to 800 copies, right? And uh, so it was the source of probably the greatest tension between authors and the press. It was an enormous source of friction internally within the press because editors were on the front line of this you know, righteous venom from authors. And the people who were responsible for the fi finances and for inventory were saying, sorry, we can't do it. So along comes print on demand where you can print a book. And this, you know, it took about 10 years. It took a while to evolve. But you can print a book like you print something on your HP LaserJet 5 on your desk. I mean, it's quite, I've, I've been to the, uh, the plants that make the books, and it's, re it's a remarkable merging of software and manufacturing, you know. The, the paper goes in, <laughs> and the book comes out, and it's just amazing. There are these tubs of primary color ink. Uh, they print the jacket. I mean, it, it, it's really one of, I felt like I was uh, watching an episode of, you know, when Mr. Rogers goes to the, the pretzel factory. It was just astonishing. And so for Oxford, we now, more than half of our books do not physically exist in any warehouse. We, we have 21,000 books in print. I think it's like 13 or 14,000 of those books are just sitting on a server. Uh, and that has changed everything. It's made us a better publisher. We're moving now to an environment where we'll be able to print uh, much closer to where people actually want the books. Uh, so we're still right now, in most cases, printing centrally and then taking the books from a uh, printer, shipping them to our warehouse. Then we ship them from the, put the, from the warehouse. They go onto a truck. Then they go onto a ship. And then they get sent all over the world. Then they go to another truck. And then they go to the warehouse. Uh, in, in the country of sale, which is a breathtakingly inefficient system. So soon we'll be able to actually print 
uh, at least on the continent of sale. And that's why I'm always a little skeptical when there's all this talk about, oh, there are going to be bookstores where uh, there's just going to be a you know, a, a one copy of every book, the book will be, the store will be like a showroom, and you'll just be able to order the book and then, bang, the thing will print it and you'll walk away with it. That sounds great, and we'll get there, and it's going to take years. Because the idea of a single machine that has access to the digital, the electronic inventories of all publishers, that is, you know, we are one publisher, and just from a supply chain standpoint, we struggle to actually just print on the continent of sale. Uh, so it's, it's, it's animating because it's a, it's a vision you can work toward, but it will, it will be a while. But in any case, so for us, you know, this line just extends indefinitely. It never, it never stops. And that has meant uh, that we are um, just a better publisher and our authors are less dissatisfied with us. Uh, the Pew uh, Research Center published a report about ebooks recently that uh, was about 85 pages long, and I've, I've pulled out what I thought were the most salient details. Uh, they asked people, uh, according to six different categories, whether they preferred print or electronic. Uh, and the categories were reading with a child, where 81% of people uh, preferred uh, uh, print. And notice that it says reading with the child. Uh, for anybody who's ever read an interactive uh, children's book on an iPad with a child, I wonder what that number would be if you asked uh, the children, because uh, the interactive children's ebooks that I've, uh, I've read to children are amazing. Uh, then sharing books with other people, still almost 70% of people prefer print. Uh, reading books in bed, interestingly, is about uh, split 43-45, and uh, for anybody who's ever you know, sat in bed trying to prop up a sternum bruising 800-page history, you can understand why, um, why an e-book might be uh, preferable. And then it starts to shift pretty heavily in favor of e-books. So selection, 53% prefer e-books. Reading books while traveling or commuting, 73%. And then being able to get a book quickly, 83%. So, the, the, the peril there, I think, is uh, in, the, uh, you know, in, in the future of, of brick-and-mortar retail, which I think is a cause for concern uh, for anybody who is uh, interested in books and in, uh, in publishing. Uh, so this, I thought, was also uh, absolutely fascinating. So this is, uh, they asked the same group of people, uh, I think about 18 months apart, so in June of 2010 and then December of 2011, um, what, on any given day, what format they preferred. So uh, in uh, June of 2010, 95% of people said print. And um, then in December, that number was 84. And that translated perfectly to uh, uh, the shift to ebooks. So it used to be 4%. And now in December, uh, this past December, 15% uh, uh, of people said they prefer ebooks. And then audiobooks are limping along at a steady 4%. Um, I thought this was also interesting. And again, this is US specific. Uh, when uh, people were asked what kind of e-reader they own, 62% said Kindle, 22% said Nook, and then, as I was saying, the, 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 the et cetera category, Kobo, Sony, and then, rather hilariously, 9% of people had no idea what e-reader they had. <laughs> and I have to say, I think that those are, we've all had the experience, I know I have, of giving uh, a relative an e-reader, and they profess great enthusiasm, and then basically chuck it into the closet, and you never see it again. So, uh, and then this also, for, for people who fret about the future of print, I thought this was uh, enlightening. This is, uh, shows the, the plans of adults who don't own ebook reading devices. So um, 
The 8% uh, of them plan to uh, purchase one in the next uh, six months. 5% were considering purchasing one. But 85% basically said, you know, I actually, I'm, I'm not interested. I, I like my print. And, uh, and again, that just speaks to the way in which uh, print is a medium that, that uh, engenders an enormous amount of loyalty. So I just want to give you a very quick uh, history before I give you some uh, case studies of, of our experience with, uh, with e-books of uh, how this has all played out. In 1999, NetLibrary came along. They were funded by hundreds of million dollars of uh, venture capital. It was the first dot-com boom. And uh, they were, uh, their business model was probably providing e-books to libraries. They've since um, gone through a lot of hard times and uh, were recently bought um, and uh, essentially ingested by another company. But they were really at the... Uh, at the very forefront. Sony, as I said earlier, came out uh, in 2006 and got the head start in terms of the, uh, the release of the first e-reader, but has not really had much success with it. The Kindle debuted in 2007, the Barnes & Noble Nook in 2009. And then in 2011, you had the uh, expansion of the e-readers into tablet forms. So rather than just being uh, doing one thing, uh, the Kindle Fire and the Nook tablet are essentially, uh, they do a great many things. You can go online, you can, and, and that has actually been one of the most interesting things, I think, for, uh, for publishers is that transition because we, uh, in retrospect, naively thought, well, you know, there are going to be four and a half million Kindle Fires that are sold during the holidays. We're going to see a tremendous e-book spike because when uh, people buy e-readers, they start filling them up. Well, uh, in fact, when they buy Kindle Fires or Nook tablets, they're not just e-readers. So they go on and they start buying apps and they're, uh, they're doing all sorts of other things, but they're not just buying books. And so uh, as a result, we did not see quite the, uh, the spike in e-books that we thought. And it's interesting to, to note how people who are loyal to their e-readers, uh, oftentimes the people who are most loyal, and I would count myself uh, in this category, uh, are the people who uh, have a first generation e-reader because they think it makes them a better reader because when they're reading on it, they don't have the option to do a zillion other things. You know, they're not checking their stocks or, or updating, you know, refreshing this page or that page. And that's a very interesting development because that whole uh, way in which different people uh, discipline themselves to, to, to uh, essentially motivate their behavior or to try to um, uh, nudge themselves into doing one thing or the other. I was on the... Uh, um, a, a committee for the future of a, of a college library a few years ago, and there was a heated debate as to whether or not you make one floor uh, Wi-Fi free, or whether that was, you know, uh, anti-liberty, anti and you should, people should have the choice to do that. And, you know, both, I, I, I can see both sides of that argument, but the idea that you would actually say, all right, this, this is just for reading. Um, is, uh, is, a, is a pretty powerful thing. So in 2008, uh, the publishing industry, about a $28 billion industry, less than 1% of the industry was ebook sales. Uh, and in 2010, that had increased to 6.4%. And then, as I said, the, uh, we had sort of the, the big shift last year in, in fiction. And Amazon uh, touted the, the notion that ebook sales had outnumbered print sales, but always fails to mention or doesn't highlight that, 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 that uh, that's true for units, but it's not true for, for dollars. So when you think of sales, the question of whether it's units or dollars is obviously a uh, um, in other words, whether it's individual copies of books or the aggregate sales amount is key. Uh, 
This was a, 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 a graph that The Economist published a few years ago projecting ebook sales in 2013 at 5.8% uh, of, uh, of the total. And as you can see from the previous slide, they got it pretty disastrously wrong. So three years before that, it's already at 6.4%. So it is, things are changing fairly quickly there. This is a, uh, apologize for the blurry slide. This was a, just a screen grab that I pulled off. Uh, uh, and what I liked about it is that it shows ebook sales by month. And what it shows you is the, uh, the way in which uh, after the holidays, people, this is September, November, January, so you get the holidays right around here, people, everybody gets their ebook reader and they just buy a ton of ebooks. And then it kind of limps along and then you have the holiday season here again and then you see the same, you know, the same spike. Uh, and this goes to the one aspect of ebooks that I, just from a publishing standpoint, really, really like. And that is they're enabling us to learn about how people read and how people use and buy books in a way that we never knew before. Uh, there was a piece in the Times uh, a couple months ago, uh, the headline was, Your e-reader is reading you. Um, and it talked about how uh, Amazon and, and Barnes & Noble can now see when you abandon a book, how long it takes you to read it. Uh, I think one of the statistics was that uh, people who read the, uh, the Hunger Games trilogy, something like 60% the moment they finished the first book, immediately went online and bought the second book. So that, you know, there are all sorts of privacy issues swirling around that that are intensely uncomfortable and worrisome. But from the standpoint just of uh, being able to see how people read, it's, uh, it's a fascinating development. Okay, so I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going on a little bit long here, so I'm going to uh, quickly go through a couple of these case studies. This is a book, uh, Gotham, The History of New York City to 1898. Uh, we published this book in 1998. Uh, it uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, established itself as the definitive history of uh, New York City uh, up until that period. It's actually part of a three-volume trilogy, and we're just in the process of working on the second volume, which takes the story of New York up to uh, the, the post-World War II era. And uh, it, uh, it was selling about 2,500 copies in print a year. When I make reference to a sternum-bruising book, this was the... Uh, the uh, uh, what's the, the uh, phrase I'm looking for here? Well, it was the the def definition of a, of a, of a sternum bruiser is about 1,400 pages. It's a $35 paperback. Uh, and, and it's a terrific book. And goodness, there's a typo. Yikes. <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, by the standards of uh, university press books, 2,500 copies a year for a book that is uh, uh, this old is actually really, uh, really very good. So we did a uh, promotion with Amazon uh, where we offered the book for uh, 24 hours, it's called a daily deal, uh, for $1.99, okay? And uh, we had no idea what was gonna happen. Uh, and I'll never forget, uh, this is one of these eureka moments in one's uh, professional life where uh, we got the sales report from Amazon for the previous week and I clicked it open, looked at it, picked up the phone, called our sales director and said, have you opened up the Amazon report? And she said, no, no, uh, I haven't. I was like, open it up, stay on the phone and open it up. And she opened it up and looked at it, and you know, our, our response was, uh, can, that, can that really be right? Uh, because what we uh, ended up selling is almost 16,000 copies in one day. Okay, and uh, that was a bit of a surprise. Um, and uh, it was really uh, just beyond anything we had, had conceived would, would, could possibly happen. So that you know, that got our attention. So we did this uh, with a couple of other books. Uh, the book the book actually went to number one in the paid Kindle store. And it was at a time when people, to, to a lesser extent now, but it was, at that time people 
we're going to the bestseller list, as they often do. There's a very much a catalytic effect. When a book gets on a bestseller list, people see it and they buy it. And so um, even after the promotion ended, because again, it was only for one day, uh, it, was on the num it was number one for, I think, three days. So we sold several thousand copies additionally than at the full digital list price. Uh, so this, this kind of uh, halo effect was, was pretty remarkable. So we started experimenting a little bit more. Um, and uh, took Washington's Crossing, uh, which also won the Pulitzer Prize, and um, uh, did the exact same promotion with it, uh, published in 2003, was also selling uh, a lot of copies, uh, sold almost exactly the same number of copies, 15,400. Uh, went to number three on the Kindle bestseller, and uh, sold uh, 235 units the next day. It was not during the holiday period, so the, the halo effect was a little bit uh, less uh, for this book. So then we thought, okay, well, in both those cases, those are essentially iconic books of history by you know, Pulitzer Prize-winning historians. What happens if we take a more recent book? So this was published in 2013 by uh, a, a couple of brothers. It's a story about uh, 12 days in Washington at the beginning of the Civil War, where it looked like the Confederacy was going to lay siege to Washington. Very you know, kind of red meat American history. And uh, it went to number two on the Wall Street Journal ebook bestseller list. Uh, and we sold fewer copies, but we still sold 13,000 copies in one day. So uh, we continued on uh, with uh, all sorts of different kinds of experimenting and learned a huge amount. Uh, this was a book uh, actually by the Cambridge historian David Abulafia, History of the Mediterranean. Uh, this was an interesting uh, development. It was named the uh, best, uh, best book of the year by The Economist. So the week of December 4, before that designation, before that issue was published, we were selling equal numbers in print and Kindle, about 350. Then the next week, uh, we sold 452 in print, but we sold over 1,000 uh, in the Kindle. So, and again, what the, the, uh, the reason for that is it's a great big doorstop of a book. So I, I really do think people now look at these books and think, I just, you know, I don't want to be carrying around this three-page, uh, three-pound book. Um, so oddly enough, size uh, has, a, uh, has a profound effect on whether or not people uh, want the print or the Kindle edition. So of all the experimenting we did, this is my absolute favorite one. Uh, we published a book uh, about seven or eight years ago called The Pact. Uh, the subtitle is Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, and the Rivalry that Defined a Generation. It's essentially the story of uh, the way in which Clinton, after you know, stripping the flesh off each other's bones, Gingrich and Clinton, for uh, a couple of years, realized that you know, they both had great ambitions. Uh, they both uh, had the best interests of the country uh, at heart. And they, um, they just had profoundly different opinion about how to get there. But they finally just said, you know, maybe there's some way in which we can uh, uh, do something. So, uh, working uh, essentially in secret, they uh, tried to uh, cobble together some points of agreement. Uh, the whole thing then blew up and, and went away in the wake of the Lewinsky scandal. But um, uh, it, uh, it was you know, sort of a, a lost opportunity in American history. So when we published the book, uh, people were, it, it just it, it fell flat. Uh, it, didn't, it got a few reviews, but generally speaking, it, didn't, uh, it did very little. So um, this graph right here shows the number of units of the ebook that were ordered. So it's a daily sales. So you can see this is uh, actually right around Christmas time. It's uh, late December 2011. So literally on a daily basis, it's selling absolutely nothing. So on uh, the 31st of January, we did a promotion uh, where uh, we added it to 100 books, ebooks that were priced at $1.99. So the first day, it sells 225 copies. Then it kind of drifts along for a couple days. Uh, then uh, Gingrich has a uh, very strong showing in the Iowa caucuses. So the sales bump up to 300. 
Then meanders along. He has a poor showing in New Hampshire. Sales are down to 100. And I actually forget what that was. There was some, uh, but then uh, he wins South Carolina, and sales go up to 450 the next day. So you know, we, we've never had the ability to track something like this. And it's just fascinating, because you know, books are this barometer in some ways, of, uh, or this gauge of how uh, people the extent to which people are interested in the topic. And for us to be able to track this, and you know, the old model for this would have been, we would have printed 2,000 copies, you know, wheedled and cajoled the bookstores into taking the books. Uh, the books would have uh, gone in, and um, we would have sold three or 400 copies, and then 1,200 copies would have come flooding back from the bookstores a few months later. And another example, Dick Clark, the, um, the host of American Bandstand, we published a biography of him in 1999. Uh, that book uh, was essentially, you know, uh, on the backlist, uh, doing virtually nothing. When Dick Clark died, we did a very quick little promotion, ebook promotion, uh, and sold a couple thousand copies of the book in short order as ebook. In the, you know, given the fact that when when people die, uh, people take an interest in their work, and um, so it, it it is a means of getting, you know, when I'm when I'm. Uh, was talking about the translational role that we play of trying to get uh, the voice of the academy into the public sphere to inform uh, current events, which I think is a really key component of what we're doing. This is an example of that uh, in a way that uh, it, we're just much better able to do that now than we used to be. Um, the one other, th there are all sorts of unintended, or not unintended, but um, kind of unknowable side effects of uh, e-readers. And uh, I remember reading a book a few years ago called When Things Bite Back, and it was about the unintended consequences of technology. And I was reminded of this again the other day when uh, I was in a conversation about, uh, about uh, e-books and so forth, and uh, uh, the conversation moved towards uh, 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 night tables and how most people who fancy themselves readers have this relationship to their night table, right? You have these books on your night table. And uh, some of them have been sitting there for a long time. <laughs> and you know, they, you walk into your bedroom and they're, they're whispering guiltily at you, uh, or guilt-inducingly at you. And the fact is, um, that, is an, that, is, that has a, a prohibitive or a, a, a suppressing effect on book sales. Because if I've got 20 books out of my night table, which alas, I do, uh, that's gonna make me buy fewer books. If I have that nice, sleek e-reader sitting there that looks exactly the same, if it's got 40 books or 400 on it, that's, that's not the same thing. Uh, and, and I think that there are all kinds of ways in which you know, we are fundamentally irrational beings, and, uh, uh, and we're still in the early stages of figuring all this out. So just, uh, I just want a quick, and I, I don't want to dwell on this because I do want to leave some time for questions. Um, when I talk about uh, all the different ways in which we are making content available, I wanted to give you a sense of, uh, in the institutional space, uh, for scholarship, for librarians, for, for, uh, for researchers, there are so many different ways in which we're experimenting. So, uh, you know, the question of single-user access versus multi-user access, do you simply replicate the checkout, physical checkout model in a library, or do you just give people uh, unlimited access to it? To what extent can you... Uh, 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 rely on demand to help you inform your, uh, your ordering. So if you're a librarian and you're suddenly faced with this dilemma of, I've, bu I've bought all these books in print, do I buy all these books in, in electronic form as well? Maybe what you do, and what librarians increasingly are doing, is you say to your users, we don't actually have this book yet. 
But if you want it, just click this button and we'll get it for you immediately. And with eBooks, you can actually, again, this, there, there are all sorts of systems challenges to doing this, but there is no uh, technological barrier ultimately between if you're, uh, you know, you're in WorldCat or you're looking for something and it comes up and you can't get access to it and you simply click the buy to get full access button and it's under $100 so the librarian says we have a, a budget of X, we're gonna, we're gonna let our users decide what we want and then the, the book is purchased at that point rather than speculatively when it's published uh, and especially now given that a lot of librarians are, are, are strapped for space and are taking large, you know, large percentages of their collection and storing them in some you know, retired nuclear missile silo somewhere. Um, uh, you know, oftentimes the, the, the difference between uh, ordering that print book up out of the silo, it's 72 hours till you get it, whereas you could just have the ebook straight away. So there are all kinds of different options there. And, and if you're a librarian then and your provost has said, listen, that 50% uh, of, of, of content that you're buying that doesn't get checked out once, you gotta get that up. Well, if you do that, you can kind of hard bake into your usage statistics uh, the, the fact that people, uh, what you're buying is gonna get used because the very act of, uh, of, you know, of, of, of uh, patron-driven acquisition, as it's called, uh, enables that. So uh, questions of subscription versus perpetual access. Do libraries subscribe? Do libraries just buy it and host it themselves and keep it? That's a big one. Can you offer large collections? Can you offer title by title? Can you offer individual chapters? Um, do you want to uh, institute a pay-per-view model? Do, do publishers uh, distribute themselves? Do they go through aggregators? These are all some of the issues that we're facing. So this whole question of where collection and curation takes place is key. I'm gonna whip through this because uh, we just don't have a lot of time. These are uh, five of our, uh, our biggest initiatives online. I wanna just touch briefly about uh, on Oxford Scholarly Editions online. One of the reasons I'm here this week is because we launched this in, uh, in London at, the, at Trinity House earlier in the week. Uh, Oxford has published over 300, that's no, more than that, I forget how many hundreds, hundreds of uh, scholarly editions in the last century. Um, if you're a scholar of the Enlightenment, say, and oftentimes you, you actually in the promotional video we show a guy sitting at his desk and there are these books open everywhere. His desk is just you know, filled with these large tomes that are opened with various post-its. Um, so we've digitized all of these scholarly editions. So, uh, and there, there's, we have so many of them that we're having to do this in a staggered way. Over the next five years or so, we will have all of our scholarly editions available online with a functionality that even to somebody whose who's understanding of, of research uh, is, is relatively uh, amateurish, uh, it's remarkable the, the way in which you can move between text, you can search for themes. It's, it's, it's gonna be an absolutely uh, transformative uh, service for people working in, uh, across a whole range of fields of philosophy and history and, um, and classics and so forth. So, and the rest I'm just gonna go through. So, uh, to close with a canine cartoon, uh, this is a very famous cartoon from the early in the internet era where the one dog is saying to the other dog, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you were to look at this through the, through the lens of a scholarly publisher, what we're trying to move towards is a world where it doesn't matter if it's a book chapter, if it's a journal article, if it's an encyclopedia entry, whatever, that basically people can find it uh, and that it comes up early in their, in their search. So um, what I think oftentimes happens when people talk about publishing is that they, um, they conflate the future for uh, librarians and publishers with the future for readers. And I would say, and I, and I feel this very strongly, that 
even though it's become an incredibly complicated, confusing, challenging environment for librarians and publishers. And you know, there will be winners and losers over the next 10 years, in, I think, in both, in both worlds. You know, from the standpoint of librarians, this whole notion of having these physical collections, these repositories of content dotted, you know, dotting the landscape, when you have access to everything electronically, um, what does that mean for actually having these different, uh, this constellation of, of, of libraries? And I think we're all still working through that. Um, but I think for readers and scholars, it's never been better. You know, I, I, I oftentimes, uh, a lot of people express anxiety to me in various uh, uh, fora about, um, you know, whether people are still reading, people's attention spans. People, and I have to say, it strikes me that people are reading now more than ever before. When I was a kid, I read a lot, right? But, I don't remember uh, it being almost a cultural, you know, in order to be culturally literate, uh, it seems like now you have to have read uh, about a dozen uh, uh, serial young adult novels. And I'm not just talking about Harry Potter, but, uh, you know, it seems like every three or four months there is a, uh, a series of books that, that uh, uh, children need to have read in order to actually be able to talk to their friends. Uh, and I don't remember that being the, the, the case. And, and I actually very much subscribe to this notion of uh, you know, Harry Potter as, as being a gateway drug to reading. I think that that is one of the, uh, you know, the most remarkable developments that this single uh, uh, book series uh, has had the effect it has. Uh, so I'm actually very, very optimistic about what all this means for, for reading and scholarship. Um, Amazon is currently in a very strong position. Uh, it's uh, a source of a lot of debate in, in uh, publishing circles, uh, in, especially in the US, and that's something to watch. Um, I'm going to skip over that. Oh, just very quickly, um, we publish World's Classics. We publish uh, 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 three, 400 books in the World's Classics series. And um, what we were finding, because those books are all not in copyright, uh, is that uh, we were losing a lot of the market share for those books, that sales were, were sort of petering off. So we. Um, we decided because there are you know, 10 or 12 different uh, versions of Moby Dick for free online. So we made one simple change or two simple changes that, uh, that had an immediate effect. We put in the title field, uh, in parentheses, Oxford World's Classics behind the title. And then rather than uh, in the description of the book, rather than saying you know, Moby Dick is a story of a you know, man and a whale, which everybody knows, uh, we described why this ebook is different from all the other ebooks. So we focused on things like functionality, on linking, on uh, critical apparatus. And the effect was, was instantaneous. Uh, I think actually the title, when people, because when you have a 12 different versions of Moby Dick and you see Oxford World's Classics, um, you know, people, because, you know, these books are a dollar, two dollars in e-books, and, you know, that's less than the price, uh, price of a cup of coffee. Uh, so people are like, okay, I want, the, I want to make sure I get the right edition. If I'm going to invest the time to read Moby Dick, I want to make sure it's, the, you know, it's a good edition. So, uh, you know, a really interesting minor tweak, and it had an immediate effect on, uh, on readers. Uh, so I think, again, I, I would contend that we all are reading more now, but we're reading in a more fragmented way, and that, uh, that does raise a host of questions. I've mentioned the extent to which I think it's a good thing that technology has become uh, distributed. And, and again, I would just say that I think the, uh, this transition from, from print to digital, um, it, it offers up enormous opportunities for uh, everyone, not just readers and, and scholars, but I think even publishers. Uh, there are ways in which we can do our jobs better uh, uh, and those ways are, are becoming increasingly evident over time. So, sorry, I went on a little bit longer there than I expected, but uh, thank you very much. Thank you.